Now, that brings us to the end of this historic interlude, and we come now to the third major division and the last major division of this book. And I've labeled it prophetic burdens from chapter 9 through chapter 14. And in turn, I've divided the prophetic burdens into two divisions. The first burden are the prophetic aspects that are connected with the first coming of Christ, and that's chapters 9 through 11. And then you have the second burden, the prophetic aspects that are connected with the second coming of Christ, and that's chapters 12 through 14. Now, actually, we have come here to something that I think that's very interesting. As we entered here this new division, we are going to find that it goes over the same ground, approaching it from a different viewpoint, but the same ground that we had in the ten visions. It begins with Israel where they were in the days of Zechariah. He was back with a small remnant, very discouraged. They were attempting to rebuild the temple. And he and Haggai were raised up of God as prophets to encourage the people to rebuild the temple. And we find that he begins in that local situation, that which to him was the contemporary scene. And then he moved on down into the immediate future where God was going to bless them. But it would not be a permanent blessing, and this is going to show that the chapter 9. But on down through the centuries, God had a plan and purpose, and there would come the Messiah. And we have the two comings here, coming first as the Savior and coming the second time as the Sovereign. Coming the first time with the cross in view, the second time with the crown in view. Now, in chapter 9, and we get here to this particular chapter, we have actually, in the first eight verses, the judgment upon the nations that was accomplished by Alexander the Great. And we'll find, as we get into this chapter here, some very interesting things. You see, in Zechariah's day, some could become a little too optimistic. They could say, well, this is going to be the millennium. We've returned back and the temple's rebuilt. No, out in the future, there's coming another world ruler. And there's going to be a contrast made between that world ruler and the one that God will send to the earth the first time. And we have here, actually, Alexander the Great. And I think you'll see that as you get into this chapter here. Alexander the Great, a young man who died a drunkard at the age of 33, very arrogant, very insolent, highly conceited, but probably the most brilliant general that the world has ever seen, and a tremendous not only military leader, but a great political leader, a man that had a certain charisma and he had multitudes of followers. Now, we open in chapter 9 with verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus. 
shall be its rest, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. Now, this is a burden. And we saw when we were in Isaiah that a burden meant a judgment. Now, we arbitrarily said that this chapter opens with the burden of the word of the Lord in the hand of Hadrach. Well, this land is north of the land of Israel and also Damascus. Damascus is the capital of Syria, and it still is to this day, and still has caused Israel a great deal of difficulty. But there is described here the progress, the march of an army and a great general down into the promised land. And here is, without doubt, one of the most remarkable accounts that you find in the Word of God, and that it was literally fulfilled. This so terrifies the liberal that he has to move Zechariah up to the time of Alexander the Great, because if he doesn't, he feels like he's in deep trouble. And I want to say that he is, because this describes actually when Alexander the Great left Europe and crossed over into Asia Minor, what we know today as modern Turkey, he took city after city. And he was a very cruel and brutal man. But you must understand that he had only an army of 50,000 men, which in that day was rather small, and he could not leave back of him any man to watch over the city that he destroyed. Therefore, he had to so weaken the city that it could not become a problem to him in the future. In other words, that he would have difficulty from the rear, so that he obliterated many of these cities, and he was noted for that. He's a brilliant man, arrogant and conceited young man when he died, 33 years of age same age the Lord Jesus was. And the interesting thing is that the Word of God here makes a comparison between the two. I have a very excellent poem that compares Alexander and the Lord Jesus, and it opens with that, that both Alexander and Jesus died at the age of 33. But Alexander died a drunkard after a night of carousing when he got to Persia why, on the march. The next day he died. But this man was a remarkable general. And he represents in the book of Daniel the third great world power, that panther in the seventh chapter, or as the goat with that big horn, one horn. That goat is the Greco-Macedonian Empire, and that horn is Alexander the Great. But here he's presented to us in Zechariah, and actually this was his march. You will find that this is the thing that is recorded. I have the books, I'm looking at them, of Flavius Josephus right here in my library. And in those books of the Jewish wars, why he records the march of this man as he came down into the land. And he took city after city, actually destroyed Tyre and Sidon. And everyone thought Tyre was impregnable. They were out on an island. Actually, it was an island fortress. 
They were great seagoing people. The Phoenicians were the great commercial nation of that day, one of the wealthiest peoples. And Alexander the Great, he just took time out there to scrape the old city that had been on the mainland and take all the pillars and everything and make a causeway that went out to Tyre. And today you can see all of that that shows how prophecy has been so literally fulfilled. And then he came on down into the Philistine country. And in verse 5, I read here, Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectations, shall be ashamed. And the king shall perish from Gaza and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And if you go over there today, I took pictures of the ruins of the old temple of Dagon, and that area has been returned to the nation Israel. And at Ashdod, they've built an artificial harbor there, and they've built apartment after apartment, and literally thousands have moved in there. And then further inland, as you go down the coast, you find Ashkelon. It's a great thriving city today, but not where it was. It was actually down right on the seacoast. And the ruins are there today. And it's more or less of a park, very beautiful area. But the fact of the matter is, it's not inhabited. It's a park for people to come and spend the day and have a time of recreation. But... It's not a city anymore. It's interesting how God's Word was literally fulfilled. Now, Alexander the Great destroyed all of these great Philistine cities. And we're told, verse 6, "...and a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod." It doesn't say that it will not be inhabited. It just says that it won't be a very high-class people that will be there. And certainly it is inhabited today. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. In other words, Alexander the Great brought to an end the Philistine nation. After that, they never emerge as a nation again. You never see them again. And God says in verse 7, And I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God and he shall be like a governor in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. So that God says he's bringing an end to this Philistine nation. Now, what about Jerusalem? This man, Alexander the Great, he destroyed everything that was ahead of him. I mean, I don't care what he came to, he destroyed it. And if he had to wait around a few months like he did at Tyre to take the city... He didn't mind doing it because he's not going to leave a strong fortress back of him anywhere. As we said, he was actually a very brilliant general. Now, we have this strange statement here, verse 8, "...and I will encamp about mine house." Now, that's a little temple that they will build in. God says, I'm going to protect that from Alexander the Great. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more. 
for now have I seen with mine eyes. Now, God says, and Zechariah had the nerve to give it because of the fact that there could depend on the very accuracy of the Word of God whether that's going to be fulfilled. God says, I'm going to protect that little building, that little temple. Now, that should have been an encouragement, you see, to these people to go ahead and build. Because God says, even when that great world conqueror, Alexander the Great, comes down, I won't let him destroy the temple. Well, why didn't he destroy Jerusalem? Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, and every other great world general has marched an army through the city of Jerusalem. And most of them have leveled it to the ground. It's been destroyed again and again and again. And that's the reason today you can't say that you're going to walk where Jesus walked in the streets of Jerusalem. There's been so much debris there, and one city built upon another and been destroyed so many times that actually the pool of Bethesda is probably down 40 or 50 feet below the level of the city today. In our Lord's day, why it was 40, 50 feet below where it is today. So that this city certainly suffered at the hands of man. And Alexander, being the brutal man that he was, why, he certainly is going to destroy Jerusalem because it's been the fly in the ointment of nation after nation. But God says, I'm going to encamp about mine house. God says, I'm going to protect it. Well, did he? Well, this is the record of Josephus, Flavius Josephus. He has this to say concerning it, and I'm not giving this verbatim at all. I won't take time for that. But you could check it if you wanted to. You will find that his explanation was that the great high priest at that time had a vision that he was to go out and meet the conqueror that was coming. And when Alexander the Great came up to Jerusalem, he saw this man. And instead of letting the army move in and slay everyone, why, he went up and worshipped in Jerusalem at the temple. Because he said that before he left Dios, that he had had a vision that he'd be met by a man who would represent the living and true God. And it said that he went into Jerusalem and worshipped. Now, another tradition is that the high priest not only showed him the garments, came out arrayed in all the garments, but brought along the book of Daniel. And he showed Alexander in the book of Daniel where God had prophesied concerning him. And that so moved him that he came into the city and offered sacrifice and worshiped the living and true God, and he did not destroy Jerusalem. Now, that makes this prophecy a very remarkable prophecy, by the way, that you have here. And it doesn't detract from the fact that Alexander the Great, though the most brilliant general of the day, was still highly brutal and cruel, arrogant and conceited. Now, we are introduced to one of the most remarkable verses in Scripture, And this is a verse that is used of the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem because he too came into the city. And there's going to be a comparison made now between Alexander the Great 
and the one who is coming, who's going to be God's man. We have here in verse 9 this language, and I want you to listen to it very carefully because it's very important. And it's this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, for he is just and having salvation. And by the way, salvation can better be translated victory because deliverance would be victory of the king coming to deliver. He's just and having victory, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a coat, the foal of an axe. Now, if you want to read how that is quoted in the gospel record, you'll find it first in Matthew 21, verse 5. And I think probably I should turn over and read that. And if you'll note that there is quite a difference between what you have in Zechariah, what you have in Matthew, and it's caused some to say this was a misquotation of prophecy. Well, I don't know why people like that, of course, they're looking to try to find errors in the Bible, why they don't study it and see why it's quoted differently. Now, I'd like to read what Matthew has to say. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, there's certain parts of that prophecy that are not quoted. Only that part which Matthew quotes is the part that was fulfilled, and that the other part waits the second coming of Christ to the earth. Now, may I go back to the Gospel of John, because John likewise quotes in John 12, verse 15. And here he quotes it like this, "'Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's coat.'" And that's all that John gives. Now, why is that abridged and abbreviated as it is? Well, we're going to find that that portion which is quoted in the New Testament was fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, and the other will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. Now, it actually was not a triumphal entry. It really was a triumphant exit that he made when he was here before. That was the thing that the church, I think, has miscalled it. And then I want to call attention to something else. He didn't come in just one day in the so-called triumphal entry. He came in three days. Now, you'll find if you consult the Gospels rather carefully, for instance, in Mark, the 11th chapter, verse 11, I'll not turn to this now, you'll find out that he came in first on the Sabbath day, Saturday. We talk about Palm Sunday, as Palm Saturday too. But he came in as a king. He came in, he didn't do a thing in the world, Mark says, that he just looked about the temple and the city. The money changers were not there. It was the Sabbath day. He came in as the king, and he rejected the city and temple. 
He said and did nothing. He went out, he wept over the city of Jerusalem, but as the king. Then he came in the second day, and it was Sunday. And that was Palm Sunday. The money changers were in the temple, and he cleansed the temple. He came in that day as a priest. And you will find that in Matthew 21, verse 12. He came in as a priest. Then on Monday, he came in the third time. On the way in, he cursed the fig tree. And Matthew 21, verse 23, tells us that he taught in the temple. He came in as the prophet of God. He came in as a king, as a priest and a prophet. And every instructed Israelite knew what he was doing. He was presenting himself as the Messiah. And now, was he meek and humble because he rode on that little donkey? And my answer is no. He was meek, but not because he rode on that little donkey. Now, I would like also to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, although all the Gospel writers record the triumphal entry. It's only Matthew who quotes from Zechariah. Now, John gives a rather running commentary on the prophecy of Zechariah. Instead of saying rejoice, he says fear. And actually, that is a good sound interpretation. So that Matthew is the one. And therefore, I want to turn to Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, verse 1. And let me read this record because it's rather important for what we have to say today. And I'm reading now. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, a coat with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he'll send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a coat, the foal of an ass. Now you'll notice he gives it to us, Tell ye the daughter of Zion. And he leaves out, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And you'll also note that Matthew leaves out he is just and having salvation, and the better translation, I think, is victory. He is just and having deliverance or victory. Now, you have here these two omissions. And why did Matthew leave them out? Was it because he just didn't quote accurately or because he didn't know? I think not. I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. And I believe Zechariah knew what he was doing because he was writing by the Spirit of God. And I think Matthew knew what he was doing, was writing by the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not going to read any farther in Matthew's record, although I'll refer to it now. And so I want you to look at this verse today with us as a text. I was in San Francisco the night General Douglas MacArthur arrived from Japan. 
I'm sure many of you recall that. It was after World War II and a long time after World War II had ended. And he was whisked from the airport to the hotel in a rather, they thought, uh, private, or at least a semi-private march from the airport to the hotel. Well, there was a public demonstration that snarled traffic. I'd been warned that afternoon by a friend as I was leaving that night on the train to return back to Los Angeles. He said, you better get down to the train if you intend to catch it, and you ought to go now. Well, I actually took my suitcase down and checked it, and then I came back up into San Francisco and had dinner. And when I came out, I have never seen such a crowd in all my life. And there was a public demonstration that had snarled traffic, and I had to walk from the Civic Center down to the railroad station. I got in a taxi, but he got tied up, and I told him I could make better time walking, and he agreed. And so I got out and walked to the station, the only way I would have made it. And the next day, I was told they had a real triumphal entry. And it was repeated later in New York City. Now, if the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem 1,900 years ago were compared to this, may I say it would seem very puerile, penury, and poor. It was really, 1,900 years ago, a parade of poverty. It was not a ticker parade by any means whatsoever. It was the coming in of a very poor man with very poor followers. And if there'd been a Roman in Jerusalem that time, and he had stepped out of the building he was in, and have asked somebody in the parade, what's going on? They'd have said, this is the triumphal entry of Jesus. And he said, you think this is the triumphal entry? You ought to have been in Rome when Caesar got back from Gaul. It was a parade there that lasted for over three days of him bringing the booty and the captive back. And if you think this is triumphal, why, you should have seen that one. And you'd see how poor and beggarly this one really is. I think, frankly, the church has misnamed it the triumphal entry. Christ never intended it to be a triumphal entry. It actually marks a crisis in his life, a life that was filled with crises. It marks a change of tactics. Heretofore, he'd slipped into the city silently. He'd entered unobtrusively. He sought the shadows. No publicity. Always withdrawing from the crowd, not courting attention. It was said that he would not cry or strive or cause his voice to be heard in the street. He entered by the sheep gate and came in and eluded the mob and evaded the crowd. And even when he would perform a miracle, he would put a hush-hush on it. And now there's a right-about face. It seems that there's an inconsistency here. Now he comes out into the open. He enters publicly. He demands attention. He requires a decision. And he forces the issue. For one brief moment, the nation must consider him. And the Pharisees were accurate when they said, the world's gone after him. 
Jerusalem was stirred when he came in. Now, in spite of this forward thrust, this reversal in tactics, pushing himself into the front, he was meek, we're told. Matthew left that out of the text, that he was quoting from Zechariah, that he was lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And Matthew says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, these striking omissions that we have here, actually, these omissions are something to note and something to register, by the way. Matthew doesn't quote everything that is there. And he leaves out, Rejoice and shout, O daughter of Zion. Why, he says, Tell the daughter of Zion. And it says he is just and having victory. And he leaves that out. Why? Well, let's look at it. He does include he's meek. And it is assumed by those who read it, since it says in connection with it, that he is riding upon this little animal, a donkey, and everyone assumes that little donkey is an animal that denotes meekness. Far from it. That little donkey was the animal that kings rode upon. You see, the horse was the animal of warfare, and so used in Scripture. The little donkey is the animal that kings rode upon that were seeking peace. And when they were at peace, it was a royal animal, by the way. And if you go back to the book of Judges, the 10th chapter, verses 3 and 4, and then again in the 12th chapter, verse 13, you will find that the judges provided donkeys for their children to ride upon. That was quite a thing in that day. One of the judges had about 20 boys, and he got all of them a donkey to ride upon. That's like getting him a, in the old days, would have been a Stutz Bearcat. And today it would be one of the sport models that we have, a car. After all, the little donkey was quite a royal animal. You know, today with the sports job, you can have the top back or you can have the top up. And in that day, this little animal, you could have his ears down or the ears up on the little donkey. It's the animal that kings rode upon. And the thought of Zechariah is that in spite of the fact He's riding in as a king, denoting peace, that he is still meek and lowly. Now, there's another wrong impression that needs to be corrected, I think, relative to this so-called incident. And Bible teachers in Great Britain and Europe have recognized largely that there were three times that he came in in a triumphal entry. He came in first on the Sabbath day. That was Saturday. came in... And on Sunday, and then he came in on Monday. And I think that the Scripture bears that out. For instance, he came in the first time on the Sabbath day, and he came in as a king. And Mark says in Mark the 11th chapter, in verse 11, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. First time he came in, he just looked around. The money changers weren't there. It was the Sabbath day. And he just looked around. And his very action is that of rejecting it. He came in as a king. 
and that's Palm Saturday, if you please. Then there's Palm Sunday, came in the first day of the week. The money changers were in the temple, and he cleansed the temple on that day, and you'll find that he came in as a priest. And Matthew makes it very clear. I didn't read all of the record in the 21st chapter of Matthew, but if you drop down to verse 12, it says, "...and Jesus went into the temple of God, cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves." This is the only action that he ever performed as a priest when he was here upon this earth. And that, my friend, is something that's quite remarkable. But may I say to you that the writer to the Hebrews made it very clear he was never a priest here on earth. In Hebrews 8, 4, it says, For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. But no priest ever dared cleanse the temple, and he did, and that was his only action. And he did that when he came in on that Sunday. Then he came back in on Monday, and on the way in he cursed the fig tree. Mark says in Mark 11, verse 12, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, was hungry, saw a fig tree, cursed it. And he tells about the cleansing of the temple on that day also, but also moves on down. And we are told again by Matthew in chapter 21, verse 23, it says, "...when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority?" He came in on the third day as God's prophet. He's teaching. He's speaking for God. And every objection at that time, and he silenced the enemies, and his was the voice of God. Not only said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, but he that hath heard me hath heard the Father. He certainly did that in action. So that you have here the fact that he came in three times. That makes this rather important. Now, the final appearance before the nation in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. Now, was he making an entry? No, he was making an exit, not an entrance. He was not arranging to take up residence in Jerusalem and reign. He sent them in to arrange for a place for the Passover. But he never said, let's rent an apartment for three years. He was getting ready not to enter, not to become the king, but he was entering to prepare for his exit. He was preparing for his passion for his suffering, for his death, passing through the portals of death. And his entrance into Jerusalem was not a one-way ticket. was a round-trip ticket. And part of the program which led to Calvary and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, his coming again, and also as the king. The fact of the matter is, the trail of triumph cannot be confined or limited to a ride on a little donkey from Bethany to Jerusalem. It's only a minor segment of a trip that began in eternity past, when he was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And it extends into eternity future. And when you see it in those terms, and it becomes meaningful. 
And it's meaningless without seeing it like that. The one who came out of eternity is the one that came into Jerusalem. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Isaiah 57, 15. And then in Psalm 92, Even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. That is, from the vanishing point to the vanishing point, he's God. And so he came in like that. Now, the church calls it a triumphal entry. I don't think so. I think that it's a triumphal exit. Because, as Bishop Rule says, that crowd that followed him, that said, Hosanna, they never thought of him as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Well, that same crowd that said, Hosanna, one day said, Crucify him the next day. I think one of the most interesting pictures that's ever been painted was painted by an artist that I do not know his name. And he paints a little donkey. And the little donkey is chewing on some palm fronds. And there are three crosses in the background. May I say to you, that tells the story. It wasn't a triumphal entry. It was a triumphal exit. Six months beforehand, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem to die. And he moved by a prearranged program and a vowed arrangement, a definite decision. Nothing was accidental. Nothing left a chance. That little donkey was arranged for. The upper room had been reserved. And he came in on schedule. Got on the plane in London, and the captain came on when we took off, and he said, we will be landing in Los Angeles 12 hours from now at a certain time. And may I say that we winged our way across that wide waste of the Atlantic and a cloud cover over Iceland and then came down over Greenland and finally saw part of the coast of Greenland and it looked like an ice box to me in deep freeze and also across Canada and the wastes there covered with snow and finally we came into the lugubrious climate of Southern California, right on schedule. And when he came into Jerusalem, he'd come out of eternity, friends, and he's going into eternity. So he's not making an entry. He's making an exit. He's going by the cross. That was his destination. And the empty tomb was not, though, the destination. And the empty tomb was a goal. Oh, no, it was not his goal. The ascension did not end his story. And he makes a triumphal exit. And that's the reason that Paul could write that when he ascended, he led captivity captive. And he could say to a thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. May I say to you, we can sing today, looking into the future, when he's coming back as a king, because he had a round-trip ticket, by the way. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne, Hark how the heavenly anthem downs all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as the matchless king through all eternity. And all I can say at the triumphal entry, I bow before him as my Savior and my Lord. Now, friends, last time I spent the entire period on the so-called triumphal 
entry, and we called it the triumphal exit. And I just want to say this one final word relative to it. You noted that Matthew quoted only a portion of it, just a definite portion, and he left out certain things. May I say to you that there were certain inclusions and certain exclusions. There are certain admissions and certain omissions. And why did he leave certain things out and why did he include? Well, I hope we made it clear last time that which Matthew quoted and also John interpreted had to do with the first coming of Christ and the other has to do with the second coming of Christ. He came on the little animal of peace the first time, bringing peace. He's coming upon the white horse the next time, the animal of warfare. But he's going to bring peace. How? By putting down all unrighteousness. Because, you see, the world's had 1,900 years to decide what it's going to do with Jesus Christ. And he's pretty much rejected today. So God is going to make it very clear that the Son is coming back this time to reign, not to die, not for redemption, but to reign, and that he intends to put him upon the throne. And this was something that I'm sure puzzled Zechariah. Still puzzling some folk today, but may I say to you that Simon Peter made it very clear in First Peter, the first chapter, verse 10, of which salvation... The prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so the prophets, like Zechariah here in one verse, he just ties together the first and second coming of Christ. Why? Because they inquired and they searched diligently, but they couldn't make the distinction. They just had to put it down as the Spirit of God gave them. Now, Simon Peter, by the Spirit of God, makes the distinction. He came one time to suffer, to bring redemption. He's coming the next time in glory to reign upon this earth. And so Matthew, by the Spirit was able to make that separation there. And you'll find all the way through the Word of God. That is, the Old Testament prophets in particular, that distinction that's made between the first and second comings of Christ to this earth. Now, I want to leave that verse, although it's the very hinge on which I believe that this last section, the door swings on it of interpretation is around this great verse that is here. And I know in this chapter and in the next chapter, that is especially true. Now, I want to read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. And I'm reading. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. You see, the horse speaks of warfare. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea, even to sea, and from the river, 
even to the ends of the earth. And I think I'd like to just continue reading before we interpret. Verse 11, As for thee also by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, in which is no water, Turn to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope, even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. When I have bent Judah for me, fill the bow with Ephraim. You see, that's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They're not lost. At least God didn't seem to think they were lost here. At least he knew where they were. When I have bent Judah for me, fill the bow with Ephraim and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee like the sword of a mighty man. Now, I had the question raised before when I've been through this section. In fact, every time I go through this section, when I start out in chapter 9, and I describe the march of Alexander the Great as he crossed over into what is now modern Turkey and took those great cities and destroyed them. And it's almost a shame some of the lovely things that he destroyed. And he did it, of course, because he had an army of only 50,000 men. He was moving swiftly to world victory and to world rulership. And so he laid these cities low and he kept marching and then he made the turn to go down to across the bridge, which is the land of Israel. And the great cities that were then in the north in Syria, why he destroyed them, Damascus is mentioned. And then you can see him as he enters the promised land, the land of the Philistines. And you can see also then when he came to Jerusalem, he did not destroy it. God said that he was going to encamp around the temple. He was going to protect it. And of all the places that had been destroyed, you'd expect Jerusalem to be destroyed because everyone thought that it would be because actually the high priest here refused to give the tribute that he'd been giving to Media Persia, to Alexander, because he felt obligated by treaty and he kept his obligation and that naturally would infuriate Alexander the Great, and you would expect him to come into Jerusalem and destroy it. But this is the one city he did not destroy. Though he took Egypt, he took Babylon, and the Media Persian Empire went down. And he's 33 years of age. He died a drunkard. And he died with the whole world actually in his hand. He had marvelous charisma. His followers were loyal to him. And it is said that many of these peoples turned to him. He was a brilliant general, attractive young man with a great deal of charisma, and yet brutal and cruel and arrogant and all of that. And someone says, how do you know he's talking about that? Well, verse 13 should have made it clear, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. And Alexander the Great is of the Macedonian Empire, the Greco-Macedonian Empire that came over and became a world ruler. He controlled the world of his day. He controlled everything except Alexander the Great. And he died a drunkard. 
And I have a very wonderful poem. I was going to bring it with me today, but couldn't put my finger on it. It's a poem that began, Jesus and Alexandria died at 33, both of them. And by the way, he came down in a brutal way to conquer the world. And what Zacharias doing is putting in contrast the triumphal entry of Alexander the Great into Jerusalem was something to behold. The high priest went out to meet him. The Maccabees at that time went out, and Alexander the Great was very superstitious. He'd had a vision, a dream of a man that was decorated like that, and that he was to listen to him. And the high priest, we're told, this is all tradition, he showed him in the book of Daniel where he was mentioned. And Alexander the Great's mentioned in the book of Daniel. He's that goat that has one big horn, and that horn was broken. That's the Greco-Macedonian Empire. And they were to rule over these people here of Israel. Well, he came in in great triumph into Jerusalem, but he didn't destroy it. After all of that, he thought it was so remarkable he wanted to serve the living and true God. And he came in and brought a sacrifice. Well, may I say to you, that was quite remarkable. But what a contrast. Now, here comes Jesus into Jerusalem riding on a little donkey. And he's not coming to destroy the world. He came to save the world. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. He didn't come to form a great kingdom and get a great following that are to minister to him. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he comes into Jerusalem as a king in not a triumph. He's getting ready to leave. He'll be leaving shortly, (laughs) but he's coming back. Now when he comes back, uh, the world will have had a long time to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. And they've got to make a decision concerning him. And so he's coming again. Now, we have in this section something that I think is quite remarkable, that this one that came into Jerusalem wasn't making a triumphal entry at all. He's on the way to the cross to bring peace to mankind. But he's coming someday to bring peace to the world. So he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. They had been rather warlike. And the horse from Jerusalem. The horse is the animal of warfare. And the two kingdoms made up of the same people, divided now. And one went into captivity to Assyria, the other to Babylon. And God says, I'm going to take away these instruments of warfare. Why? Because the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the nations. This earth, friends will never have peace until Jesus Christ comes and establishes peace. Now, I have always shivered, actually. I tremble when I hear the different presidents that we've had in this country since World War II, and every one of them has talked about world peace and that they were going to bring world peace in. Well, Not one of them was willing to recognize that he could not bring in peace in the world. Only Jesus Christ can bring peace to this earth. 
And it's just as simple as that. But not one has recognized him as being the Prince of Peace. And do you know that that's the reason that we haven't had peace? We have been constantly at war. And we have a standing army in Europe. We have armed soldiers throughout the world today. And we have fought two terrible wars since World War II. Korea and Vietnam. And may I say to you that we even landed our Marines yonder south of Beirut and Lebanon. Oh, we talk about peace. But we've been a warlike nation. May I say to you, it's well that we stay prepared. But when you talk about peace, you're going to bring peace to the earth. You don't do it by war. Only Jesus Christ can bring peace by putting down unrighteousness. I don't know about you. I'm not going to vote for men anymore. I'm voting for Jesus. He's the one, and he's the only one, that can bring peace to this earth. He shall speak peace unto the nations. Now, that'll not take place till he comes again to this earth. And until then, I think that we, instead of trying to make peace throughout the world, We just need to keep prepared to protect ourselves because I tell you, this is a big, bad world that we live in today. And we've attempted to talk brotherhood and that type of nonsense. That's not scriptural at all. The only brotherhood that can be formed today is in the body of Christ, those that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now, I know this is not popular today, but... I have discovered that there are a lot of medicine the doctor gives me, and then he throws me down on an operating table and just keeps cutting and cutting on me. And I want to tell you, it's not fun. (laughs) But that's the only way in the world I'm going to have help by that route. And the only way in the world that the world is going to have peace is through Jesus Christ, whether they like it or not. Now, verse 11. As for thee also by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit in which is no water. And I would say that the best I can do is really to make a spiritual interpretation of this, that the only deliverance is through the blood of the covenant. That blood of the covenant is the blood of the New Testament, the blood of Christ. And only through that is any deliverance for mankind. We do not recognize that man in this world today is actually, he talks about his freedom and his liberty and all of that. He's a prisoner. He's sold under sin. He's a slave to sin. And in a day when we hear so much about liberty and the hundreds of letters that we've had about drug addicts that have been delivered, how? Only by the blood of Christ, my friend, only by turning to him. He's the only one that can deliver prisoners in a pit where there's no water. Now, will you listen? Verse 12, Turn to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee when I have bent Judah for me. Now, when? Well, we're looking now toward the millennium, to the time he'll reign. He says, Fill the bow with Ephraim. I've raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece. 
and the nations of the world are going to bow to him. Made thee like the sword of a mighty man, and the Lord shall be seen over them. And his arrow shall go like the lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. Now, I think all of this is depicting his coming to this earth to establish his kingdom. Now, my friend, when he comes, that's going to be a triumphal entry. And until he comes, there'll be no triumphal entry. Now, will you notice verse 15? The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue the sling stones, and they shall drink and make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls and like the corners of the altar. I would say that this is a picture of how it's going to be until he comes. Man is not going to bring in the millennium on this earth. Now will you notice, and the Lord their God shall save them in that day. Now that day in Zechariah, and we're going to find out Zechariah is really going to start using that expression when we get over to the 12th chapter. He will talk about nothing in the world but that day, that day. And that day is the day of the Lord. And that day begins after the church makes its exit out of the earth to join the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And here on earth, the great tribulation begins. It will be ended, we believe, seven years when the Lord returns to establish his kingdom here upon this earth. And then you have the millennial kingdom upon this earth. The Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the... It's not really the stones of a crown. It's really jewels of a crown, lifted up as an ensign, or rather as glittering upon his land. They'll be like glittering jewels in that day of the Lord. Malachi is going to tell us that the Lord is going to make up his jewels in that day. Church is the pearl of great price, by the way. He paid a tremendous price for that pearl of great price. And that is the picture that is given to us here. Now in verse 17, will you notice, for how great is his goodness And how great is his beauty. Now, this is the goodness of the one that's coming. In contrast to Alexander, who was not known for his goodness. He was cruel, brutal, and arrogant, filled with pride. The Lord Jesus is meek and lowly, and he's great in his goodness and in his beauty. There was no beauty that we should desire him when he came the first time. That cross is not as lovely as some seem to think it was. It was a horrible thing. But when he comes again, oh, his beauty, how beautiful he is today. And we hear about the beautiful people today. He is the beautiful people and those that are his. Grain shall make the young man cheerful, new wine, the maids. Now, new wine It's not intoxicating. It hasn't had a chance to ferment. So what we have here is that which speaks of food to eat and that which speaks of abundance, that which speaks 
of something quite wonderful, the grain and the new wine. That will be the thing that will characterize his kingdom. There will be plenty. There will be no energy shortage when Jesus reigns. Now, I'm coming to the 10th chapter of Zechariah and that very wonderful ninth chapter that we looked at and spent some time with. But there are those that believe that chapter 10 is just a continuation of chapter 9. Now, it's a belief of, I think, some very fine commentators today, men that are fine Bible expositors, one of them, Dr. Unger, and he feels that verse 1 belongs to chapter 9. And the reason I mention that is that I accept that, but that the rest of the chapter is separate, and we'll see that I think, as we go along. Now, he has been describing to them in chapter 9 the future deliverance of both the northern and southern kingdom and how God is going to use them in the future and that the millennium will be set up with these people actually being priests to the Gentile nations of the world. Now, chapter 10, I have labeled this chapter, Judah and Israel are to be scattered again, but they will be finally regathered. Verse 1, though, does belong with chapter 9, the glorious, wonderful picture of the millennium that's coming upon the earth. And he says here, "...ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field." Now, first of all, let me say that when he says rain here, that's exactly what he means. He's speaking of literal rain. Because, you see, God had promised Israel, who were an earthly people, earthly blessings. He promised them that which he's never promised the church. We are told we're blessed with spiritual blessings. They were to be blessed with physical blessings temporal things, and naturally they would come through the rainfall that would come to that land that would bring forth the crops. And actually that land in that day, as we've already seen, was like a Garden of Eden. And today it almost looks like the opposite place. Why? Judgment has come upon that land, and it hasn't been lifted. Now God says that he intends to send the latter rain. Now, we find here that when he says latter rain, he means latter rain. And you will find that God has mentioned this several times, and that the thing that denotes judgment is the withholding of rain. And that is what has happened in that land today. I would say that the next problem to the Arab problem in Israel is the water problem, how to get more water. Well, the best thing would be, and the easiest thing actually for them, would be to turn to God and then experience physical blessings that would come through rain. But they haven't turned to God, and the rain has not returned. I was told that the latter rains had returned to the land. Well, they haven't returned. They are getting more rainfall, that is true. But some of those groves that they've set out If you are there in late summer, you will know that they need rain, and they need it bad. 
by the way, and there's not enough actually for the irrigation. They can't irrigate near the land that needs to be irrigated. Now, the latter rain, or as it's called the spring rain, comes in the months of March and April. And it is returned, I'm told, to a very limited degree. They're not getting near the kind of rain that would be indicated here. For God says that he intends to send them rain in the time of the latter rain, and that there would be plenty of grass for the stock, for the animals. There would be plenty of rain for the trees and for the crops that they plant and for the fruit that they would like to set out. That is the picture that is here, and it entirely refers, and the interpretation is to that which is physical. Now, I think it's also typical of spiritual refreshment. And it's used that way in the prophecy of Joel. For instance, in 2.28, we've been over that. I'm not going back over it. And here it has that connotation also, that that which physical rain does for the land, why the spiritual rain are the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon these people and the prophecy in Joel and this prophecy here have definite reference to the millennium, to that period which is coming. And there will be a pouring out of the Spirit of God in that day. So that you have here, I think, this twofold meaning. Now, when you get to verse 2, you have turning again back to the fact that there must be judgment of that which is wrong in both the northern and southern kingdom, and God intends to strengthen them for the last days, and he intends to bring them into the millennium. But there are certain things that are radically wrong in their midst. Now, that's called to our attention here in verse 2. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie, and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way like a flock. They were troubled, because there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats." For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them in his majestic horse in the battle. Now, we have before us here that which was really the thing that was causing the trouble in the nation. That was the thing here. And he says, for the idols. Now, the word for idols here is actually the teraphim and the teraphim utter wickedness, and the diviners envision lies. Dreams of vanity they will speak and will comfort emptily. That is, actually they have no comfort to give, although it may seem like it. Now, this was one of Israel's great sins, their former dependence upon idols and diviners. And the Word of God had a great deal to say against that. These idols that he's talking about, teraphim, they were small household oracular divinities. 
and they are spoken of elsewhere in the Scripture, I'd like to turn to the 21st chapter of Ezekiel. And verse 21 reads, "...for the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of two ways, to use divination. He made his arrows bright, he consulted with images, he looked in the liver." All right? Now, that's quite helpful. Dr. Unger, who is quite a Hebrew scholar, and he's written, actually, several books in this area of demonism and that which is satanic and demonic in our day and also in the past. Now, I'm indebted to him for this bit of information, that modern archaeology has given us some new information on the teraphim at an ancient site that's right near Nineveh. It's called Nuzu. Never heard of it before myself, and it's not as familiar place as Pasadena, California, to me at all, a place called Nuzu, and it's near Kirkuk. And that hasn't helped me much because I didn't know where Kirkuk was. But the important thing is that in the excavations there made back in 1925 up through 1941, they found tablets that illustrate the customs that were as far back as the patriarchs. And you will remember that when old Jacob took his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and left Uncle Laban, old Jacob had trouble with Uncle Laban, you know, and he was glad to leave. And Rachel actually took the teraphim. That's in Genesis 31:34. This information now that's been found shows that the possession of those household gods implied leadership of the family. In other words, when she stole those gods and then sat on them, on those idols, and said that she was with child and couldn't get up, well, she was really covering a whole lot of ground there. And all of these household gods. That meant old Jacob was going to inherit everything Laban had. Let me tell you, that fellow Jacob was a rather clever boy. The fact of the matter is, Rachel stealing them was a very serious matter. That's the reason that Laban was so wrought up over this. And he surely didn't want old Jacob to get his estate by any means he felt like he got more than he should have when he left. Now, the teraphim were used, actually, by the diviners. And we're told here the diviners envision falsehood. Now, the method that was used was a very pagan method that was used. Divination is an occult, heathen imitation of biblical prophecy. The devil is always imitated that which is biblical. He never gets far from the Bible. And every one of the cults and isms in Southern California and even Satan worship is using the Bible. Certainly they are. That's the devil's method. Now, in that day, he imitated biblical prophecy through divination. Actually, the word divination means to cut or to divide. And it had to do with taking a sacrifice and cutting it open, and looking at its innards. In other words, looking at the liver, and the form of the liver, and the way it was shaped, 
and that was called hepatoscopy. That sounds like a medical term to me. And I had gallbladder surgery, and I'm almost sure that there was a word similar to that that was used. And I hope they weren't looking at my lever for that reason, by the way, to try to figure out the future from it, because I don't think it had much of a future. But the thing is that then they attempted to interpret the future that way. And as they looked at the liver, the shape of it would tell them the shape of things to come. And that's the way that it was done, because they considered the livers the very seat of life itself. Now, these diviners, Balaam was one of them. The Philistines had them, the Babylonians had them, and the false prophets of Israel used that method. This man, Zechariah, considers the diviners as envisioning falsehood. They were not getting their information from God, but it was demonic inspiration and not the Spirit of God. And you find that all of the prophets deal with this. And God had put down a law concerning this, as you well know, that they were to have nothing to do with divination. They were to have nothing to do with these sorcerers at all. It was entirely satanic. Now, I'm not going into this in any great length today, and I'll tell you why, because when we get to the book of Revelation, we will be dealing with it, and I do not want to spend too much time in this area, and I'll tell you why. I think that for a long time, the pulpit neglected this type of thing. I remember about 25 years ago, I brought a series in downtown Los Angeles, and we averaged over 3,000 people every Sunday night that came in, and we spoke on this matter of demonology and of demons. And at that time, I was pretty much alone. Several of my preacher friends kidded me. One friend that I played golf with, he said, McGee, you'll do anything to get a crowd. Now you're speaking on demonology. Well, I must confess I did that then because I felt it was needed. But I feel like now today the pendulum of the clock has swung to the other side, and there's too much talk in the church on demons and upon Satan. Now, we are seeing a manifestation of this. Someone asked me the other day, have you seen the exorcist? I said, no. Are you going to see it? Answer, still no. And they said, why? You ought to be informed. I said, I don't care to go in to see that type of thing. I believe for years, this is not something new with me, that Satan and demonologists are a reality. But I don't think he's working on quite that low level today. I'm of the opinion that he's out working on the front where the Word of God goes out. And that's the reason that my physical problem I've had, and I've had a little too much of it, For me, at least that's what I told the Lord. I thought he was overdoing it, but I don't think that he really is the one that has done it. I think he's permitted Satan to get to me, and I think it's been satanic. I think Satan would like to stop the teaching of the Word of God. That's the place that he would work naturally. And no wonder many of our so-called Bible churches have gone off on an ego trip where they are playing up some program and something where they're bringing in the crowds to something that's new and novel. My friend, 
the only thing that God is permanently going to honor is His Word. And I've attempted very candidly during these days to keep my eyes centered on the person of Christ. What is the answer to all of this false thing today? And I think the devil will deceive you. And I think, friends, that he can probably destroy the reputation of most anyone. And that's the reason we need the protection of God today, as we have never needed the protection of God. But we need to keep our eye upon Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that we have called attention to him so much. Because if you stay close to him, you're going to be very far away from the devil and demons, I can assure you. And all of this talk about casting out demons today in the church, I think instead of casting out demons, we ought to do a little casting in of Christ. That's the important thing. You remember that there was a parable the Lord gave about a man that had a demon, and the demon went out of the man, and the man got all swept clean and garnished. He got rid of the demon. But you see, he didn't have anything to fill up the empty apartment. And so this demon got tired of walking around, And he remembered this fellow, and he went back because he was an easy mark. And he brought some friends with him, some more demons. And the last estate of the man was worse than the first. So, my friend, if you're casting out demons, you sure better put somebody in the apartment in a hurry because the demon has a lot of friends, and he'll be bringing them back, and he'll be moving in. So that this is a remarkable prophecy that you have here. For the idols, the teraphim, they've spoken vanity. They've lied to you. They always have. And the diviners have seen a lie. They are the ones that have used this. And they told false dreams, dreams they never had. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way like a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. There was no true shepherd to lead the people. And today, the great need of the church is not for more new programs or new gadgets, new methods. What we need are shepherds that will feed the sheep with the Word of God. That's the important thing in this hour. It's the only thing that's going to deliver the church. Now, we are living in a day, of course, when we are seeing a manifestation again of demonic power. And today, a great many people are judging these organizations or these individuals by the apparent success that they have. It never occurs to them that we are to try the spirits to see whether they be of God, because there is the spirit of Antichrist into the world today. And that is, of course, satanic. It's quite interesting that just this morning, now this is the morning I'm making this tape, that there has come in the mail to me personally six different communications from cults and isms, not only here in Southern California, but throughout the country, weird interpretations of the Word of God, that which is strange and far from the interpretation of the Word of God. And every one of them uses the Bible, every one of them. I have one right here before me before I throw it into the wastebasket. And actually, I have several volumes of books that have come. And I do want to say to the folk who send me these cult 
books. You're really wasting your time. I'm a very narrow-minded, bigoted individual, very dogmatic, and I don't even read them. I don't even consider them. I, sure, I'm missing something. I had today, part of the communication was a letter, 20 pages closely, not typewritten, but handwritten. Well, I wouldn't read that for anything in the world. As someone that has a strange interpretation. Now, the one I have before me is that if I should go and hear this man, he's going to talk on signals from outer space, a UFO invasion imminent. In other words, they use this scare thing today that we're going to be invaded shortly. These little men from outer space are going to come and take over. Well, May I say to you, a great many people fall for this sort of thing. So many people went to see the exorcist. I've not seen it. I've seen excerpts from it. And it's nothing in the world but a horror picture. And it was made by those who actually do not believe, certainly in God, a personal God and a personal Savior. But apparently they believe there is a spirit of evil in the world and a spirit of good that's in the world. And that, of course, is true. But that is a very flimsy sort of ephemeral and ethereal viewpoint. You can't get your teeth into that. And there is this turning today, just as Israel turned to the occult, turned to that which is exotic and has to do with demons, actually. And there's a great deal of that today. And God's people need to test everything that comes along. And that is the thing that he is saying that will take them again into captivity. And it took them the first time into captivity. And the church today, unfortunately, seems to be going in for that. man said to me, he said, that my church, we're casting out demons. Well, I think that it'd be better, instead of casting out demons, you just get Christ into the hearts of people and get them in Christ. That is the important thing. And that's exactly now what we're going to have here, beginning actually with verse 4. But let me read now verse 3. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds. Now, these shepherds were the false prophets in Israel that had turned to the occult, had turned to the supernatural, which was satanic. And God says, Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. Now, the goats were the leaders. You know, when I was a young fellow, I worked in a abattoir, they called it then. It was a place where they killed cattle and sheep and pigs for the butcher shops. And it's a very bloody sort of a business, the first Two days I worked there, I had to go outside and sit down and recover from it. But the thing that was more cruel than anything else I thought there was an old goat had a bell around his neck, and he would lead sheep to the slaughter. They'd follow him, you know. You didn't have to drive the sheep. You'd start this old goat up there, and all the sheep would follow along. And they were going to the slaughter, you can be sure of that. Now, these are old goats that the Lord is talking about. They're leaders, and they ought to be leading the people into the Word of God, to the place where they could have peace with God, peace in their own hearts. And instead of that, 
They were false prophets, giving the people false comfort and leading them actually away from God. And God says he's angry. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his majestic horse in the battle. Now, God says he intends to strengthen the southern kingdom against the enemy. And if you want to read that intertestament period, you can read the book of the Maccabees, and it will give you a wealth of information. Flavius Josephus has something to say about that period. In one sense, these people suffered more in that period than any other time, but they were able to stand against their enemies. And God said here he would strengthen them. Then he looks on to the future when there will come the Messiah. And he's identified for us here, I think, very clearly. It says, out of him. That is, out of who? Well, out of the one that is coming. The tense is future. And it means, from him shall come forth the corner. Now, this is the cornerstone. A cornerstone is put in a building where two walls meet at a 90-degree angle, and the square stone is put in there. I think this is a marvelous picture that's given here of Christ as the cornerstone, because you see there is the wall of Judah and the wall of the ten tribes. And the message is that he's going to be the cornerstone to unite them and bring them back together again. But that cornerstone has a wider meaning than that. It's actually a very wonderful picture that's given to us. Now, Isaiah, if you'll recall, had something to say about this. In Isaiah 28:16, I read, "...behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tribe stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste." Now, what a beautiful, wonderful picture that you have there. Now, this is the verse that Peter, in the first epistle, the second chapter, verse 6, he says, "...wherefore also it's contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded." Isaiah said, "...haste." You're not getting a hurry, not get confused. That is the thought there. And in these days, you see, what is the answer to the occult and the exorcist? Someone has said to me, well, you talked about the exorcist. Apparently, you don't think Christians ought to go to it. I don't think they ought to go see it. No. Now, that's my judgment. And then, of course, I'm a square. That's understood. And I feel very comfortable being a squire these days. And I don't think that Christians ought to tamper or monkey with this occult in any shape, form, or fashion today whatsoever. What should we do? Well, if you stay close to the Word of God, you're going to stay close to the person of Christ. Because now you see immediately after he talked about this weirdo stuff, this, that's way out not only in left field, but it's outside of the ballpark. It deals with the supernatural, but it's demonic. And I don't question today that there's not power in all of this false stuff. And I shouldn't say all of it. I think they estimate today that 
80 to 90 percent of it is phony, and probably is. But how do you account for the other 10 percent? And that's where the problem is, and it's obviously demonic. Now, the Greeks in their day were a very intelligent people, and yet they made trips constantly to Delphi, and just the blowing of the leaves in that cave and the interpretation by the priest would put an army in the field. It would take a man off of the throne. It would change the course of history. And somebody says, well, the Greeks were an intelligent people. Why would they follow that superstition? Who told you that there was nothing to it? And it's just a superstition. Well, I think the devil was having a heyday there in a holiday. He was directing the Greek empire that way. And I personally don't like to hear that in Washington that there's so many of these fortune tellers and people that are dealing in the occult. I'm afraid that we're getting our leadership in the wrong direction today. Now, what should we do? Turn to the person of Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's a foundation that you can rest on. Now, verse 7, "...unto you therefore which believe is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble." at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now, it's been my firm conviction that the people who go into cults are people who have heard the gospel, heard the word of God, and they've turned their back on it. You see, when they rejected the truth, Paul says in Second Thessalonians, God gave them up to believe a lie. And that is a principle that operates, I think, today. Now, the Lord Jesus himself made a very startling statement in the 21st of Matthew, verse 44, and he called himself a stone. He says, "...and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall will grind him to powder." Now, Christ is a stone. Now, he can be a stepping stone or he can be a stumbling stone to you. You can... Either accept him and receive him. You can come as a sinner, fall upon him, trust him, rest upon him. You're broken. You'll no longer trust yourself. You'll trust him. Or he's going to become a stone that's going to fall on you and grind you to powder. In other words, he's going to be the judge. And Daniel mentioned that, that at the end of the Gentile world rule, there was a stone, he says, cut out without hands. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to smite this earth. Every government, every one in rebellion against God. Now, he's that kind of a stone. And today, what is it that we need in this day when people are turning to the cults and the occult? What are we to do? We are to get closer to Christ. He's a foundation stone. He's a cornerstone. Let's rest on him. He's the one that can bring us together and the only one that can bring us together. Now, will you notice he's not only a cornerstone, and this is verse 4 now, chapter 10, out of him the nail. Now, that's an interesting one. The nail, of course, is a stake or a tent peg, or as a boy, we used to call them stobs. You put a stob in the ground. Well, he's a tent peg. You know, the wind blows across that desert, 
And Israel, to keep the tabernacle from taking off and going into outer space, they had to nail it down. They had tent pins. And those tent pins were driven deep into the desert sand in order to hold. Now, Christ is called a tent pin. And again, we find that that's used several times in the Word of God. We're told in Isaiah 22, 22, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, none shall shut. Shut, none shall open. He is the one today that's holding things down. We need to hold on to him today, or let him hold on to us. What a picture that we're given here. And then that peg was used in another way, that nail. It was a tent pin that was put down inside the tent. Another one was put down there, and it was one that they could hang everything on. Women could hang their jewelry. Men could hang their valuables on it in the tent in which they lived. Well, he's not only a tent pin that today holds us down, but he also is the one on which God has, if you please, he has put all of the glory, all of the wonder, all of that which is valuable. To gain him is to gain that which is more precious than anything that's in the world today. Now, he's not through here. Out of him, the battle bow. He's a battle bow. And that means that he is the one that's going to come to this earth, put down all unrighteousness. The armies of heaven are going to follow him. Out of him, the battle bow, and out of him, every oppressor together. He's going to put down every oppressor, all of these goats, these leaders today, false leaders both the religious and political. Now, verse 5, "...and they shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded." Now, this period is going to be a dark period, but God is going to undertake for his people and enable them to go through it because during that period, Christ will come. And when they reject him, of course, there's no more hope for them. And Titus is outside the gates of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and down come the wall. The city is destroyed, and they're scattered throughout the world. Actually, there's a belief today of several very outstanding expositors. The nation Israel is not in that land permanently. And very frankly, I haven't come to a dogmatic position in that but I'm not sure, but what that's the accurate interpretation of the Word of God. They'll go out of that land again, and God will return them to the land. Now, when God returns them to the land, they won't have any trouble with the Arabs. And they won't be putting them out of their land. They won't cause the spigot on the gasoline pump to be turned off. They are going to be brought there of the Lord and become a blessing to the world. Now, God says, and I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I'll save the house of Joseph. Now, if you missed it a while ago, the house of Joseph belongs to the northern kingdom. And I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them. How is God going to do it? By being merciful. That's the only way in the world he ever saved me, and the only way he'll ever save you. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God. I'll hear them. Now, this is a wonderful word. 
of encouragement to these people. Now, as far as God is concerned, they're not ten lost tribes. And he says, I'll bring them again to place them. A remnant of all of the tribes had returned because the delegation had come down from Bethel, and that was one of the capitals of the northern kingdom. Now, why does God intend to protect them during this interval? Well, he makes it clear, for I'll have mercy upon them. How did you and I get saved? Well, it's not the works of righteousness which we've done, but it's according to his mercy. And he's rich in mercy, and he had to have a whole lot of it to save me. Maybe he didn't need that much to save you, but he's rich in mercy. He's got an abundance of it. And that's the basis on which he intends now, since they've returned, and he warns them about turning again to idolatry and to that which is the supernatural, that which doesn't only border on, it's satanic to the very core. Now, God says he'll preserve them during that period, and that takes you into the period that is known as the inner testament period. We'll be taking up shortly Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And when Malachi wrote, God went off the air. He wasn't broadcasting for about 400 years. And you have that interval. Now, in that interval, they probably suffered more as a nation at any time except during the time of Hitler and the Nazi regime in Germany. And these people have been preserved down through the ages. And all of that is outlined here with Daniel and Zechariah. You have a very good picture of the period. We call it a silent period between Malachi, the Old Testament, and Matthew in the New Testament. But actually, God covered that period well, and he covers it here. Now he says in verse 7, and they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. Now, just in case you think the ten tribes got lost, now Ephraim is one of the names that God gave to the ten northern tribes. And if you want to check on that, you ought to try Hosea again if you've forgotten. You remember how tenderly he said, O Ephraim, how shall I give thee up? God didn't give them up. They're not lost, my friend. And it's by his grace they've been preserved as a nation. And during that period, God says, And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. And one of the most thrilling accounts of these people is during that interval between the Testaments, time of the Maccabees, and how they stood against the Syrian conqueror, one of the generals of Alexander, and his name was Titus Epiphanes. He wasn't the general. He was in the line, of course, on the Syrian throne. And he persecuted these people frightfully. But they were unable to stand. They of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. That's going to be a period in which it'd be difficult and they'll be far from God many times in that period. But they're also going to be periods when they'll rejoice in the Lord. Now, he says in verse 8, I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. 
Now, God said that he would put them back in that land during this period. And actually, more and more of them came into that land so that there must have been, by the time that Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus, and I think that Flavius Josephus gives us some figures too, that there must have been around 12 million people in that land. Well, that's far more than are in that land today. Now, God says, I will hiss for them. Well, that word doesn't quite express it. I don't know how you'd translate it, but have you ever been sitting in an auditorium and have somebody back of you say, you know, like that, and you know somebody's trying to get your attention? Well, that actually is what the word means. And Dr. Unger gives it a new twist, and it's a good one. He says, I'll whistle for them. Well, I like that. God says, I'll whistle for them and gather them. Now, frankly, that looks forward to a return that has not yet been fulfilled because God says in the very next verse that that coming together up to the time of the Messiah and the Lord Jesus made it clear that Jerusalem would be destroyed after him, and it took place shortly after he was crucified and went back to heaven, somewhere around 33 A.D. And in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed, and these people were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Now listen to him in verse 9. And he says, "...I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again." Now, they're yet to turn again, what? To the land? No, to God. They have turned to the land today, but they have not returned to God. And it is the belief now of several expositors. I'm in agreement with them because I look up to these men that they will probably go out of that land again. This is not the return that God spoke of. I am told that 20% of the people want to leave that land. A friend of mine returned from over there, told me this at the time I made this tape. He said that 20% of those people want to leave there, want to go back where they came from. And that includes even some of the Russian Jews. And that's a strange thing to me, but that's what he says. And that actually inflation is worse there and taxes are higher there than any place. It's not propitious to go to that land right now unless you just have a craving for it and you just can't do anything else. But God makes it very clear that he intends to scatter them. And he scattered them throughout the Roman Empire. Then he says, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt. There are very few in the land of Egypt today. Well, I personally think they may be scattered again and gather them out of Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. Now, he'll bring them to Lebanon. Actually, Lebanon is part of the promised land. If you'll read very carefully Joshua, and notice where the borders are put down, Lebanon was part of it. And it's the belief of a great many that when the Bible speaks of the land of milk and honey, it had reference rather to the southern part of the Lebanese coast and that area there. It even today is a very rich and fertile area. 
Well, I don't agree with that, may I say, because I think at the time that Joshua sent spies into the land, there was rainfall there, and the hills were wooded, there were springs, and there was fruit in abundance, so that actually a few years of withholding rain can make a desert. It doesn't take very long for certain places to become desert. Now, during the dust storm, many of us remember that, that there are still areas in the Middle West that are nothing in the world but desert. And if you would go back beyond the dust storm, you'd find it a very fertile land. In fact, wonderful pasture lands, but it's a desert today. And up here in the San Joaquin Valley, it's supposed to be the most fertile, lush valley in the world, produces more, even than the Valley of Esdraelon. But frankly, if it wasn't for irrigation, that'd be a desert up there. So a little water makes a lot of difference, makes a big difference. That is what has happened to the land. But Lebanon was to be part of the promised land. And God certainly hasn't given them that. They've been criticized enough for certain Arab lands they've taken. But someday they'll be given Lebanon. And I guess any Lebanese listening to me are not going to like that, but I don't think they need worry. That's not going to happen to the millennium. And when that begins, why, everything's going to be so wonderful, even for the Lebanese, that I don't think they'll complain at all. Verse 11, And he shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. And I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. Now, he is basing the return of these people using language that was appropriate to their first return when they came out of Egypt and the same type of miracles. Now, you will recall that Jeremiah, in the 23rd chapter, says that the day is coming when they'll no longer remember the Passover, but they will remember the Lord that brought them from east, west, north, and south. What does that mean? Well, the Passover is associated with their exodus out of Egypt, the beginning of a great miracle period. Now, God says that when he brings them back to that land, it'll be so miraculous that actually they'll forget the Passover and forget the coming out of Egypt, and all they will remember will be the marvelous way in which he regathered them. Now, I do not think the wildest interpretation of prophecy today could come up with the explanation that the present return is a fulfillment of that, because it couldn't possibly be. And frankly, of course, it's not.